Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, the Democratic Republic of the Congo has a new president. Will he be his own man? Next, protests continue to rock Sudan. Is this the beginning of the end for President Omar al-Bashir? Plus, we have an in-depth conversation on protest movements in Africa. We talk about the recent waves of protests across the continent. What are the risks and opportunities for the United States if it wades in? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. An announcement few had expected, one that could set the stage for the first democratic transfer of power in the DRC since its independence. We've been on a roller coaster ride in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and in mid-January we have a new president. His name is Felix Chitsukedi, and I'm pretty sure no one predicted this result. We discussed in episode two that Kabila had delayed the election for two years, barred leading candidates, uh, picked his successor, a former interior minister who was under EU sanctions. But when the vote finally happened, Kabila's man lost and lost badly. And rather than accept the most likely winner, Martin Fayulu, he picks Felix Chitsukedi. So joining me today to discuss the twists and turns in DRC is Mavemba Dizalele. He's a senior associate here in the Africa program. With us also is Bisa Williams, the former ambassador to Niger. She was formerly the State Department's top diplomat for West Africa, and she is leading the Carter Center's team of independent observers of the implementation of the peace agreement in Mali. And Zachariah Mampelli of Vassar College. Zachariah has done the three-peat, the trifecta <laughs> of Africa political podcasts. Uh, he was on Ufuhama Africa and on Africa and now our show. So um, I want to make sure that our audience is checking out those great podcasts as well. So Mbemba, you wrote an article for us, uh, Why Kabila Lost. Can you walk us through a little bit what happened? I think Kabila lost for a set of reasons. One, he delayed too much. He didn't show the leadership that was required in terms of setting in motion things that would have created space for his successor. I think he wanted to be his own successor for so long Mm. that by the time he decided on a successor, it was too late. And then, of course, the way he selected his successor was not in the most of uh, transparent ways. And this person, Emmanuel Ramazani Shadari, was not particularly most popular, (laughs) even within the ranks of uh, the presidential coalition. And then as far as the population was concerned, Shadari was a continuity. Population wanted a clean break from Kabila's old guard. Well, they didn't get a clean break, no, right? They so didn't get the who clean did break. they get? Well, they get Felix Chisekedi. You know, people are asking why are the Congolese not into the street? Well, part of the reason the Congolese are not in the street is because for th- the first time, the opposition actually in Congo came together to fight Kabila. But they only split in two groups. So there was still kind of a cohesion there between the opposition which made it very difficult for Shadari to emerge because both people that the opposition lined up, Martin Fayulu and Felix Chisekedi, had a lot of momentum going for them. So it became very clear that uh, the winner can only be one or the other. Dara showed that Martin was winning. But I think Kabila quickly in thinking that he didn't want to live in exile, he didn't want to go to The Hague, 
he doesn't he didn't want to leave so i think he co-opted felix chisekedi and the people got felix chisekedi who has come now with a mitigated legitimacy because people don't see him as the real winner well so you and i Mvemba, have been having this debate um over the last couple of weeks and it's getting intense on whether chisekedi can be his own man and, and my argument is that the weight of the historical case studies is that he will that whether it's Nigeria or Zambia or Malawi um, or the Gambia, you know, we tend to see le- the new heads of state end up distancing themselves from their predecessors. I mean, uh, Zachariah, even in Sudan, Bashir was able to you know, distance himself from Tarabi. But that's not necessarily the only view out there. And a lot Pardon. of people believe that structurally, Kabila has a number of things in place. So one, um, what are those structural constraints with Aunt Chitsukedi to be his own man? And two, what are the things that you think he needs to do if he's ever going to establish his own presidency out of Kabila's shadow? I think the challenge for him, unlike the other case that you've mentioned, is that those guys came from inside. Felix is coming from the outside which means he doesn't have a network within the political structure. Either he shows a lot of political acumen in navigating that, or he's going to be folded into the, uh, that group. Because in the case of Kabila, his coalition will control the majority in parliament. They get to decide who, because of the, of the majority in parliament, they get to decide who's going to be the prime minister. They have to decide most of the uh, ministers will come from the parliament. So Felix has little room to wiggle. Zachary, anything from your understanding of broader trends that may be applicable here? I would just add uh, that he doesn't come out of the military. So Bashir, you know, is very different in the sense that uh, Bashir was an army uh, officer uh, and he had his own base of support that ex- extended beyond the Islamists who brought him to power in the first place. In contrast, Shishkadi, you know, what was his background prior to becoming president of Congo? It's, it's pretty slim. Uh, he doesn't really have support of the major uh, popular movements like Lucha. And as Mvemba points out, uh, his political base of support is pretty thin too. So it's hard to imagine uh, how he's able to carve out an autonomous path uh, from the Kabila regime. But also one thing, Judd, so far, he's not gotten a lot of support from the neighbors. South Africa has just come out and yeah, questioned so, the results. Yeah, the there is only Union. one president who came, Jomo Kenyatta. We don't have to have all presidents come to somebody's inauguration. But typically in Africa, that's a nod. The AU's position was pretty clear that they should have uh, waited uh, for the AU delegation led by a really important neighbor, uh, Paul Correct. Kagame of Rwanda. This is really the first instance where they stood up and said, one, we have concerns about this election. Two, we want to engage with the Congolese elites and leadership before the courts make their ruling. And I thought that was a very brave and precedent-breaking action. Well, I'm not sure I would call it brave. Okay. Because... Uh, but I, but I do think that it was is very important. I don't want to say very often, but we have seen in the past where there's a hesitation. I think that's why I thought it was impressive. It's been this head of state club, and they've been reluctant to criticize each other because maybe one day the shoe will be on the other foot. You know, right, but fact, it's not bravery when you do what you're supposed to do. Well, you I think I mean? that's a really good point, right? As a, they were doing what they were supposed to do. Um, we could see this again, or is did the Congolese putting uh, their hand up and saying, uh, we're not interested in your your comments? I think this is a reflection of, of, of a changing world that we're in. We're, little by little, people are realizing that everybody's watching. Thank you.
I want to talk about Sudan. It's been more than a month of protests, um, initially starting off over the price of bread, but really it was much more than that. This was about the regime of Omar al-Bashir. And what I have been impressed with uh, is the resilience of this movement. And Zachariah, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what's been happening in Sudan and why this is such an important moment. You've had uh, this legacy of historical activism in Atbara uh, that really uh, broke open uh, shortly before Christmas around the price of bread, um, but had actually capitalized on informal forms of organization that that replaced the union activity uh, as the regime of Omar al-Bashir sought to co-opt union activity and really any independent voices in that country. Um, But it seems like his strategy has somewhat backfired. Uh, The protests gained strength precisely in those parts of the country that were less under the control of the regime. Uh, And they quickly spread from Atbara to different other small towns uh, before arriving in Khartoum around Christmas. Um, So now the protests have been going on for five weeks. And part of the task and the challenge, I think, for the Bashir regime is that he simply does not have the popular support, uh, nor the coercive capacity to suppress the protests in so so many different locations simultaneously. What are the key indicators of which way this is going to go? One example in both the the 64 protests and the 85 protests in Sudan, which led to the overthrow of those military governments, was the role of the military. Do you want to comment on the broader trends that you would look at to understand uh, how this may end up? I think the military is obviously hugely important. And as you referenced, the 64 and 85 protests really pivoted around the military switching sides, junior officers in the military in particular, who refused their, the commands from higher ups to open fire on protesters and then essentially sided with the protests, giving the protests uh, the power to overturn those regimes. Uh, and again, here, the question of the military and which way it's going to go in these protests uh, is certainly germane to the eventual outcome. I should mention that in Sudan, the military is not a unified force. But I think it's important to look beyond uh, just simply the question of the military. Uh, What's interesting about these protests, and I think why they have succeeded, uh, at least in terms of their endurance, is first that they did start outside of Khartoum, uh, an area which is much more under the control of the regime. Uh, But unlike the earlier protests, which were really led by students in 2012, these protests have taken on life in many different parts of the country with many different types of constituencies. So you have really a decentralized, non-hierarchical movement uh, that is able to pop up uh, in different parts of the country at different points, and hence makes it much more difficult for the regime to suppress it. Uh, But it also means that it's harder to create a singular message and harder to create a kind of organizational structure. Biso, in the earlier segment we talked, uh, when we were talking about Congo, we talked about the role of the region. And in the case of Sudan, I think the region's relevant here, but um, it's also, as you look beyond just the Horn of Africa and look at the Gulf, uh, Bashir went to uh, Qatar uh, over the weekend. Um, and how, how would you, as a diplomat, think about sort of the bigger chessboard and how to work with partners and to think about Gulf and, you know, how do you navigate? You've got a domestic issue, but it does have this international implication and international web that it's operating. Against. On 100% would agree with everything that the previous speaker just said. You do have that decentralization of, um, of efforts, which is important, and that it's not hierarchical and all that. But as a foreign power, as a foreign government looking at what's going on in, in that, this kind of a situation where there are protests and where you do have such a broad cross-section of society involved, there are a number of things you have to bear in mind. You're going to have to bear in mind, number one, how do you maintain whether to uh, and how to have a communication 
with the, the current regime, because there's going to have to be some kind of uh, continued dialogue, number one, for the safety of your own nationals and whatever your interests and assets are. And also, number two, as you're looking at how this is spreading across the, the population, what are the core messages that relate to your policy interests, frankly? Are people having access to food? Are, when you have labor and uh, political parties and professional associations all lined up um, with the same grievance, what are the central messages that can then become part of a relevant message from the partner country or from the outside partner? That's when I was a former diplomat. Those are the kinds of questions we looked at. That's really helpful. And Vemba? This is, um, we don't know how far this is going to go, but this is a classical situation where the military has dominated so much, they've looked at everything through security and defense and threats of that type, but they've forgotten kind of to focus on human security. Mm. And once human security becomes the central issue, typically these type of regimes are not equipped to address that. And so they become the kind of prisoners of their own walls. We've continued to see this across Africa, right? Various movements, youth movement, popular movement popping, and regime not knowing how to deal with it beyond applying force. And of course, applying force makes it worse. Yeah, absolutely. I want to move to the the topic that I brought everyone together on, which is on protests. In the past couple of years, we've seen an explosion of regime-threatening protests across Africa, from Burkina Faso in 2014 to the recent events in Sudan and Togo and Zimbabwe. And I, I think it's been impressive to watch it from uh, sitting here in Washington. And no one has studied this more closely in recent years than Zachariah, who wrote a book with Adam Branch on Africa Uprising, Popular Protests and Political Change. I highly recommend it. Zachariah, can you help us frame this issue for us? Our book started with, uh, you know, the events that unfolded around the so-called Arab Spring in 2011 in North Africa, uh, and a sense that these types of massive popular protests were happening in many other parts of the country, uh, but nobody was paying attention, right? It was framed as a a regionally limited set of protests that only extended as far as the Sahara. Uh, And in fact, if there was any coverage at all, people asked the question of when will the Arab Spring spread south? Uh, And when we started digging into kind of the empirics of it, what we noticed, and this was clear from just sort of living in Tanzania at the time, and and Adam, my co-author, was living in Kampala at the time, uh, that in fact there were these regular large-scale protests that unfolding in in all parts of Africa, uh, going back to around the mid-2000s, starting in Ethiopia, where there were massive protests in 2005, uh, and then really accelerating throughout the rest of the 2000s and continuing into the 2010s. And so for us, it was uh, this mismatch between sort of the way in which these protests were being discussed or the possibilities of these protests were being discussed and the complete exclusion uh, of what we thought were world historic events uh, from the broader debate about the upsurge of protests globally. Uh, as far as how we think about it, I think one of the challenges is that these are very disparate sets of protests. Like I mentioned, in terms of the Sudan protests, uh, they're not always clearly hierarchically organized. They, o- they often articulate multiple types of grievances against regimes. Uh, they don't always remain nonviolent. I think that's a huge part of how regimes in particular have tried to discredit the actions. Um, yet, you know, I think it's very important that we appreciate their significance. And as you point out, uh, they have been tremendously significant. They've prevented 
uh, regimes from taking third terms in places like Senegal. They've overturned governments in places like Burkina Faso. Um, and they've really been a consistent feature of Africa in the 2010s and are likely to continue in the future, as I think the protests ongoing in Zimbabwe and certainly the protests in, in Sudan today uh, are demonstrating. But could you argue that some of the big trends that we've seen in the last you know, couple of decades have really undergirded and made these possible? It's not every protest that starts in an urban environment, but there's an organizational um, assistance if you are in an urban area, technology as a way to organize. And while the continent has slowed down in terms of its economic growth over the last couple of years, we did have 15 years of growth. These mega trends have facilitated the pressure on governments to at least pretend to look like democracies. Invemba, you're an analyst and a writer, but you're also an activist. How do you think about protests? In a lot of African countries now, we live in this setting that's supposed to be democratic because you have elections, but nothing changes in terms of service delivery, in terms of uh, opening of the political space. So the only venue a lot of these populations are left with is to go to the street. Now I think one thing we have that has changed that is not only people have some money where they can, but technology itself. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't just allow them to organize, but it allows the world to know what's happening. In Zimbabwe, the first thing that the government does is to shut off the, uh, the technology, the, the satellite and the communication, because that has become a serious platform for people to project their grievances. Bisa, how do you think about, and this is a perennial question, but how do you think about what side of the ledger you need to be on? I'm sure during Burkina and other examples, you had to think about the protesters have a legitimate right to be on the streets. The government is the legitimate government at this point. And gosh, it's a terribly difficult issue to sort of wrap your head around what the right approach is for U.S. interests and then ultimately for the prosperity and peace of Africans. I've given you a lot. Grab whatever you want of that. The advantage I have and I had as an American and an American diplomat is that it was always our policy that we spoke with opposition and we spoke with government. So um, it's, it wasn't really a balancing act because we went in that way. I even went into Cuba as, the dep as acting deputy assistant secretary of Cuba and met with opposition, even though the Cuban government didn't want me to do it. I said, you know, there's no way I can be down here and not do it. Forget it. I don't care what you say. When you operate from a position of strength, saying you know, that people know from the very beginning, number one, that's a help. But how, how then do the local people take it? How do they know they can trust you? How do they know that they want to share anything with you, whether they're the government or not, and I, um, or the opposition, or even civil society that considers itself the third voice? I think we talked a little bit about what the U.S., how the U.S. engages is, but, you know, the media right now in, in African countries, when the media is not being shut down, is quite robust. Can the U.S. be helpful in shaping that role or help team up with the tech sector to get out disinformation? I do think that the uh, media in sub-Saharan Africa in particular is, is very robust. I think, though, things can be weighed on a scale. Some African media is still very dependent on patronage. And so what people might perceive as an unfettered voice is actually a paid voice by ex-candidate or ex-group. Ex so I think you need to understand that. Yes. Governments can be helpful by helping to do media training, giving examples. The United States used to have programs to expose journalists to other Western journalists and show them how they do investigative reporting. And this is important, right? Because in a protest situation, information is, is actually one of the theaters in which the protests are unfolding. 
uh, both the re- the regime and protesters are using information in the media uh, to push their cause, and we just need to be cognizant of of that as part of it. it's not just what's on the street and what's uh, in backdoor corridors, but it's actually how it's being narrated and communicated. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.